Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6, the Gospel of John. And if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We're glad you're here. Uh, feel free to take one of the Bibles you'll find at the end of the pew and, and uh, look up John chapter 6. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one as your own if you desire. We're in John chapter 6 today. We're in this series uh, where we've been looking at uh, how Christ alone satisfies and the first five chapters of John, Jesus has been teaching some profound, even provocative things. Uh, uh, that uh, Things like, you must be born again. Uh, it just really stirred up people. But to go with that, Jesus has been doing miracles that have been provocative as well. Breath- breathtaking actions like healing people uh, that have blown people away. And so uh, today is going to be no different. We're going to look at John chapter 6 where Jesus uh, feeds 5,000 people and blows us all away, even people in that time away, with an extraordinary miracle. By the way, the only miracle that shows up in all four Gospels uh, in uh, the New Testament. So believing that, listen to John 6, starting in verse 1. Listen to what John tells us about Jesus. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, (laughs) but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we now come to you and We ask you that you would speak in these next moments and that you'd speak through the speaker, you give him grace, and you give us ears to hear, and that that grace, that Holy Spirit work in our hearts would lead us to understand you more, to even encounter you in a very real way. We pray that you would do that, even in this moment, in Christ's name, amen. Well, there's a story about a young woman uh, who brought her uh, fiancé to be home to meet the parents. And of course, this was the big meeting where the the young man meets with the father and asks for his daughter's hand in marriage. And so they get together, they have dinner for a little while, and 
After a while, they depart from dinner, and the young man and the father got together after dinner, and the young man asked the father and says, so may I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And, um, and uh, the father asked, well, then what are your vocational plans? What are you going to be doing with your life? And the young man, uh, who was a Bible major in a college, said, quote, I will be a Bible scholar. Father said, okay, Bible scholar, that's great. Um, uh, so what will you do to provide for my daughter to live something like the life she's been used to? And he said, I will study and God will provide. Well, the father said, oh, well, that's great too, but uh, how are you going to afford a wedding ring uh, so that you can uh, go through with the service in the future. The young man said, I will concentrate on my studies and God will provide. Father said, okay, well, when you guys have children, how are you going to provide for the kids and my, and my daughter? He said, I will study and God will provide. Well, this went back and forth for a little while with the father and the son talking, the son, son-in-law-to-be talking like this. And finally, the young man, the young couple left. And the mother, of course, who was curious about this conversation that was happening, asked the father, like, well, what happened? What did they say? And the father said, well, well, he has no job. He has no plans. And somehow he thinks, I'm God. There it is. Every time we come to a big event in life, uh, like family things, like weddings, even in business life for that matter, the question we inevitably ask is, how's a guy going to provide? <laughs> Where are the resources going to come from uh, to do this thing? Well, here in John chapter 6 today, we're going to look at that very question about how God provides, especially in the face of an overwhelming need and we're going to look particularly at the feeding of the 5,000 story. And as a result, we're going to ask a couple of questions. And those questions would be this. How do men provide for real and, yes, even overwhelming needs? And second, how does Jesus Christ provide for real and even overwhelming needs? And what does that say about Jesus in the process? You can follow along in your outline. There are four bullet points there. We're going to talk about how Jesus captivates, Jesus creates a crisis, Jesus even cares for the crowd, and even circumvents the crowd's ways to give them what they really need. So let's dive into this extraordinary narrative in John chapter 6, and let's start with verse 1. It says this, after Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea, uh, sea of Tiberias, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So our Jesus, we find him again in the book of John being on the move. And Jesus is always moving and he's always going. He's always one step ahead of everybody. And in the prior chapter, what Jesus was doing was he was in Jerusalem, he was teaching, and he got into a conflict with the Jewish authorities of that time over healing a man on the Sabbath. Now, you and I, again, would think, well, that's a really swell thing, but they had a problem with that because from their point of view, that was work in their kind of man-made laws. The result was they were so enraged at him, they were so ticked off at him, that they actually judged him, and then it says they wanted to kill him. Ironically, Jesus turns a table, and he judges them in the process in their unbelief. 
Then in our text, Jesus takes off and he goes north. He goes north to the Sea of Galilee, actually to the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee, on the shores there at a place called Bethsaida. And that's what Luke's gospel tells us about this particular experience. The thing that that John drives home in our text in verse 2 and in verse 5 at this point really is this, that huge crowds are gathering around him. Huge crowds. The verse 5 tells us there are 5,000 men who are gathering around you. In the Greek, it's literally men, as in the gender men. What that means is that that didn't include women and children who were gathering around Jesus. Some think it could have been up to 20,000 people who were coming out to see Jesus from all the villages in the countryside at this point. And you got to admit, that's better than most concerts. That's better than most presidential campaign stops. So they come for a few main reasons, and we're told that in our text. And, and one is mentioned, is really also mentioned in John 2. They came because of the signs. They came because of the signs. Jesus was healing a lot of people. It was wowing them. And second, there was another hint of why they were coming in our text. In verse 4, it says it was the Passover. The Passover was the most popular Uh, holiday, if you will, of the Jewish uh, religion of that time. It was like a combination of the 4th of July, Christmas, and Easter, all in one, if you will. And what the Passover was ultimately about was where the, the people celebrated God delivering Israel from slavery. And he did it through a savior figure, a guy named Moses, who resisted, pushed back against a pharaoh in Egypt And God, in judging Pharaoh in Egypt and getting his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, passed over the people in a judgment. Again, the key person in that whole thing was Moses, who led the charge. Now, what's that got to do with our text here? It just seems kind of like a random text in this case. Well, in this time, the people were eating the lamb and the bread in a meal each year and each spring, which it says later in the text, where the grass was green. I don't know if you noticed that. They were eating together in that, and they were looking, you see, for Jesus to be the next Moses. That's what they saw. Here was this teacher, this prophet figure, who was doing all kinds of miracles, and they were thinking, hey, this guy could be the next Moses. They were wowed by what he was doing and the signs. Now, how does Jesus respond to the crowds coming to him? Well, clearly he's captivating them. He's drawing them in. But in verse 3, it says something interesting. It says he went away on the mountain alone with the disciples. Presumably he went to rest or pray, sit down and teach maybe is what he could have been doing. But you've got to know something about Jesus. He always does this. When the crowds come around, he's about to hit his peak of popularity in a region, in a section, in a city. He takes off. He leaves. He goes away. Why does he do this? Well, what you need to know about Jesus is Jesus prefers, in this case, to focus on his main mission and to even spend time with the Father on the mountain. And when it comes to the crowds, you should know that Jesus captivated them, but they didn't captivate him. What does this tell us about Jesus? Well, we learned that last chapter, he isn't intimidated by those who are hostile towards him. 
He goes toe-to-toe with them. But also, in this chapter, we learn that he isn't wowed by the pull of popularity or by numbers. He doesn't trust men's fickle opinions because they are all over the place. You know men, and we know ourselves, and Jesus knows us most of all. Now, what's an application for uh, for us personally and even in the church? Well, sometimes we do things in the church and even as Christians that resonate with our community, with our people we know, and even with our culture. Uh, But we should learn from Jesus not to hitch our sense of impact, our sense of significance, our sense of really making a difference in the world on what people think. Men's opinions really are all over the place. And the rest of John's going to prove that when it comes to the the crowds with Jesus. Let me put it this way. Populism isn't the way of the kingdom of God. Jesus, in fact, gives us a charge in what the real way of the kingdom of God is. In John, uh, excuse me, Matthew 6.33, he says this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. In other words, we're to seek first the rule, the mission of what Jesus is about. And we seek his righteousness by faith, not what other people think about us. And God will work out the things in our lives that we care about the most as a result of that pursuit of him. Now, the idea of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you really comes to the fore in our next verses in our text. In fact, look at verse 5 with me, and we'll see that. As it says, that, look at what Jesus does. He responds to the crowds by lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd coming toward him. And Jesus said to Philip, where are we, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. At some point, they come down from the mountain, and those of you who maybe know a little bit about Israel in recent decades, that mountainous area is what we call the Golan Heights. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. That's what it is. So they're coming down near the water somewhere, and as they come down, they come to a pretty desolate place where Jesus probably does some teaching, as one of the Gospels tells us. 20,000 people are gathering around him, and the Gospels say at some point the disciples come to him and say, uh, Jesus, it's getting late in the day. We probably should dismiss the people so they can go into their homes and get some food and, and, and uh, have a good night's sleep. How does Jesus respond to seeing all the people, even the requests of the disciples from other Gospels? Here's what he does, he says. You feed them. You feed them. And he even asks Philip in our text, and he says, uh, where will we buy bread so these people may eat? Now, Philip, because he kind of singles out Philip, he reacts in utter exasperation. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) Look at what he says here in this text. He says, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii being eight months wages in that time for someone. Almost a year's wages. And then Andrew also hears this and responds. Look at what he says in verse 9. Well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for many? Now, five barley loaves, just so you know, in that time, that was the wonder bread, the cheap bread of the time. Not the really good stuff like Pepperidge farm bread, all right? Now, that's, that's what he's talking about. 
But clearly, Jesus' question hits these guys like a thud. Um, He asked them to feed 20,000 people with no planning, with very limited resources, out in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Jesus is creating a crisis for the disciples. And the disciples are going, what are you talking about? Now, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about how the disciples respond to Jesus' request. Let's take a look at Philip's response. You know what Philip's response implies is he sees a financial solution to the situation. He was wishing money could fix it. And we know from John 1 that Jesus kind of points out Philip. And here's why, because John 1 tells us Philip is from Bethsaida. So guess who would know where the Walmart, the Costco, the Lidl, and the the Publix would be? It would be Philip. So Philip's going in his head, man, I know where all the places are, but the numbers aren't adding up. He was probably maybe an accountant going, this costs this much, and I don't see it's too big. For Philip, money was the first answer he thought about. Let's take a look and then at Andrew. To Andrew's credit, he tries to rally the troops and he tries to gather resources from people in five loaves and two fish. But even he has a little bit of cynicism, don't you see it? He said, I, mean, I got all this stuff, but it's, it's nothing compared to what we're talking about here. He knew it was inadequate. Notice how the first response of Andrew is the we response, that we can try and do this. His first thought was, community's the answer. Community's the answer. I gotta ask you this. With these two responses of of money being the answer and community being the answer, what does that tell us about the impulse of these guys and Christ's question? I think what we're seeing here is really a solution that is a self-sufficient solution. That's the issue that all of us face, is these guys are like, well, like me, (laughs) typical men, and like most of us, we think of ourselves as the answer first in self-sufficiency. This is the rhythm of American culture. We are the can-do culture of the world. We've been trained to work harder and try harder and get her done. And no doubt, some great things have been done in that way. I don't want to diminish hard work and diligence and uh, even working as a community. These are all good things. But what Jesus has done in this text is he's created a problem so big, so unanswerable, that it exposes the inadequacies and insufficiencies of men like you and me. The hard part about this is it's self-sufficiency. It dies hard in people like you and me. There's a story in November 20th, 1988. Uh, the LA Times reported there was a major accident on a freeway road. Apparently a 19-year-old woman was driving on the road, fell asleep at the wheel about 12 o'clock at night, and she rammed through a um, guardrail on a bridge. The result was that her car was literally hanging by the left wheel of the car while the rest of it was hanging over the edge of uh, the uh, bridge. Uh, A bunch of 
a half dozen motorists apparently came by, grabbed ropes, tied it on the back of the vehicle, and were literally holding it so it wouldn't fall over the side. Meanwhile, uh, emergency crews came in, including the fire department, who further put more ropes and more chains on their trucks and other things to keep the car from falling over the edge while this woman was in the car. So they spent time trying to get the woman, and it took them two and a half hours to get her out. And it took over 25 people to do the job. Afterwards, reporters interviewed L.A. Fire Captain Ross Marshall about the accident. And he said an interesting thing. He said, you know, we were trying to get her out. And she kept saying this thing over and over and over again. It's okay. I can do it myself. It's okay. I can do it myself. That's exactly what the disciples were trying to do in this situation, guys. In the face of this impossible challenge, they were saying, I can do it myself. What does that have to do with us today? Well, there are three applications. The first is this. The text tells us what Jesus himself was doing. Verse 6 tells us this interesting interlude. It says that he was testing them for he knew what he was going to do. Jesus was testing them. And that's what happens when Jesus presents a big issue in our lives. It's way too big for us to handle. Everyone here in this room at some point in life or multiple times in life has faced things that were way too big for us in our marriages, in our careers, in our parenting, maybe a health issue. Well, here's what happens. When Jesus puts that in our lives, he is revealing what we really believe. He's revealing what we really believe. Our first response is a gigantic, uh, to this gigantic challenge that God puts in our lives says a lot about what we understand about ourselves and about God. So here's the question I would ask you today. How do you respond to things that are just too big for you or others? Tell the truth. Tell the truth on yourself. Do you respond in self-sufficiency? I can do it myself. Do you respond in despair? Do you respond in denial? What problem? Some of us even go to disillusionment. The second way to move from these things to actually grow in the face of this is to learn how to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let me put it another way. When you seek first the kingdom, you seek the king. That's what we're called to do is seek the king. You know what's ironic in this text? Is Jesus, before all this went down, turned water to wine, he healed people, at some point, you would think they'd get it that he could do just about anything if he can turn water to wine, but no, they weren't thinking about that. They were thinking about themselves in the face of this problem. What they forgot is Jesus is a good Lord, but he's also a powerful Lord who can do things beyond our wildest dreams. The third way to seek the king is to rediscover prayer. Rediscover prayer. The antidote to self-sufficiency is to go to God first. 
in prayer with your needs. With whatever's too big for you, go to God first with that in prayer. Even the gigantic things that are just too big for you to handle, don't sulk and do like I like to do, where I like to go to denial and watch TV and self-medicate. Go and actually seek Jesus first. You know, recently, I've been struggling with some things. And uh, I am, uh, I'm kind of evangelist at heart. I love doing outreach with people, and I love to, um, I love planting churches. Here we are, plant number two for me. I'm even a professor at RTS Seminary in evangelism and church planting. How about that? But you know what? I've got to be honest with you. Doing evangelism personally with this plant in this community has been a challenge for me, unlike I've ever had in my whole life and career. It has been bigger than I've ever struggled. I've never struggled like this. Part of it is I don't have natural ways into meeting people like I used to with my kids and things like that, because now we're empty nesters. But another part is just it's been a struggle for a lot of different reasons, a lot of dead ends of things I'm trying. In the process, I have to tell you, the last few months I have found myself going, all right, I'm going to try this idea, and I'm going to try that idea, and oh man, yeah, I got to do that, yeah, we got to do that. And you know, it hit me as I was over the last month or so, what about if I just pray and go to Jesus first? Oh yeah, need to be busy and get about the business of sharing the gospel, meeting people and trying things, but what if I just pray for sensitivity to people? Pray for a heart that says, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Even here in this situation, this moment, in this place and time, give me listening ears. You know how much that frees me to follow Jesus and to pay attention and not get busy, which is my self-sufficient way as a pastor? You and I have an opportunity over these next few weeks to prepare for an outreach here at Ballantyne Elementary. And there are going to be more outreaches to come. And here's the thing. You and I are the kind who like to get her done. But here's what I call us to. Before you get her done, pray. Seek Jesus. And then act. Then go look. Ask for those people in a sensitive heart to the people you might invite. And let the Lord kind of lead you in some very real existential way to the people we're supposed to call to this work. Let me put it this way. In light of all that Jesus is doing here with multiplication of of bread and fish, learn to pray in our outreach. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus captivates the crowds. They're coming. He creates a crisis. Now with the disciples wrestling with what to do, Jesus does what he always intended in verse 10 of our text. Look at that. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, so much as they wanted. So here's the situation. The text is super clear about what's going on. Jesus takes five barley loaves of bread he takes these two dried or pickled fish, which they likely were, and he multiplies them with a blessing to feed 20,000 people. <laughs> he feeds them so well that they're all satisfied 
and there are 12 loaves, uh, uh, 12 basketfuls of food left uh, for uh, giving to the poor, more than likely, is what they did. This situation shows that Jesus is indeed way more than a teacher or a nice guy. In fact, it's an echo of what the prophet Elisha does in 2 Kings 4 that Nick read earlier when he fed a hundred men with food in a miraculous way and his servant even distributed the, the stuff. Even more, it looks like Exodus 16, which we're going to talk more about in future weeks, where God provided a kind of bread called manna to a million people. There's no questioning what John's intent here is. John is saying that Jesus did the miraculous. In fact, Jesus is presented as this miraculous provider, uh, uh, just like God throughout the Old Testament provided. Jesus has absolute sovereignty over the situation, and this reveals how good and kind he is to us, how he wants to take care of people, even on a mass scale. Mark's gospel says Jesus looked upon the crowd with compassion, He looked on them as a sheep without a shepherd. John is making a clear point. Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. And he can do things like God because he's God himself. He's sovereign over the situation. Now what can we take home from from this kind of extraordinary miracle that Jesus has done? Well, let me tell you what this text isn't saying. It isn't saying that There is a lesson here about sharing. That's what you hear a lot of sermons on this text say, that we should share more. Now, no doubt there is a sharing element here. I do want to encourage, but he's not getting at that. Nor is it a text that's talking about how Andrew had a little faith, and just with a little faith, look at what happened. He brought the kid with the barley loaves. Actually, if you read carefully, you find Andrew actually has as much skepticism and cynicism as Philip has in our text, (laughs) No, what we should learn is this. Christ can be trusted to take small things and make big things out of them. Christ takes small things and makes, does great things with them. He can take any resource, any person, and have an impact beyond anything you would imagine. I mean, some practical examples would be uh, Billy Graham. You know that I grew up just down the hill from him? His home, his family home in Charlotte, literally a couple blocks away. Billy Graham, who would have thunk this, this uh, country boy from Charlotte, which was then, that part of Charlotte was the, the country, became a worldwide uh, pastor to many leaders, leading many to Christ. Who would have thought that? But in a church planning environment, when we bring it closer to home, we can be encouraged too with this. We start with few in numbers. That's what church planning is almost always about. And yet the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew 13 says this, that Jesus takes uh, his kingdom seed, the mustard seed, the smallest seed in that time that they consider, and grows a tree which gathers people from all over the world in the illustration of that parable. We must trust Christ by faith to take a little and to make a lot with it. That requires a belief, a belief in the miraculous. Stephen Hawking passed away this past week. Don't know if you've ever heard of Stephen Hawking. He's a well-known cosmologist, theoretical physicist. 
And uh, he came up with some wonderful theories about how the universe works. He had a tremendous imagination about how, how science, and uh, especially on a broad scale, works. He's the guy who came up with the idea of black hole radiation, that uh, black holes uh, send out radiation, for those of you who are interested in that. He was a brilliant man. He really was. Hawking was also vocal in his beliefs about God. And he said, I quote, I am an atheist. Uh, religion believes in miracles, but they, these are not compatible with science. He even said that the fundamental difference uh, between religion and science is religion is based on authority, while science is based on observation and reason. And he said, I quote, science will win because it works. Now you should know I'm an applied scientist and engineer by trade. I love uh, science. I love cosmology, how the universe works. I really actually am interested in that. But I'm struck with how he says that Christianity is based on authority and science is based on observation and, uh, and a reason. He says that with a lot of authority. No doubt Christianity is based on the authority of believes in an authority too, itself. And it needs to come clean with that. And I can tell you as an applied scientist, the authority of science works on this, repeatable results. Repeatable results, empirical science, if you will. But the problem with empirical science is this, there are some things in life and even history that cannot be repeated and measured even miracles. If you're one who's skeptical about Christianity, who even loves science, I'd say there are many here in this room who love science with you, including me. We believe that there is a Christ who has authority over the law of, laws of nature because he authored the laws of nature. Jesus can take anything and master it. That includes me, and that includes you too. So Jesus captivates. Jesus creates crisis. Jesus miraculously cares for people in our text. There's one last thing. Jesus surprises everyone in our text by circumventing the crowd's desire. Look at verse 14 with me, our last segment here. It says this, And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Oh, Excuse me, next one down. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves. And when the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And what they go on to do is try and by force make him lead them as king. What's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. The people clearly have an agenda, but Jesus doesn't have their agenda. The people, remember, is Passover. And Passover was the 4th of July for the Jews. It's where they celebrated their release from Egypt and Pharaoh's reign. And so they're all thought, thinking very patriotic thoughts at this point. And here comes Jesus on the scene, and he does this incredible miracle that everybody sees, that everybody knows is going on, and they're thinking, that's him. That's the king, the prophet that we were looking for. He's the one who is going to make Israel great again. 
But Jesus will have nothing with the populism. He'll have nothing with the populism because he knows there's a greater kingdom. In fact, later on in the book of John, we're going to find in the, in the future that Jesus tells someone, he tells Pontius Pilate, the leader of the Roman crew there in Jerusalem, he tells them, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. And Jesus tells them that because his kingdom is about something different. Jesus came with a mission like you and me from a larger issue, a larger need. Sin and death. The crowd has plans, but Jesus has other plans. <laughs> I heard a friend of mine this say it this way. You know, the crowd, people like us, we're playing checkers in life. God's playing chess. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in our text today. He's circumventing the way because he's about something greater, salvation. Salvation of people like you and me towards a greater kingdom in this life and especially in the world to come. He purchases our redemption and buys us out of slavery to sin. He purchases us by paying the penalty for us on the cross, for the worst things we've done, for the ways we've been self-sufficient, the ways we've been prayerless, the ways we have looked to ourselves first. Christ died for that, for you and for me. Our call is to look to him as the miracle-working sovereign who can do the miracle of rescuing us personally and as a people. Don't seek self-sufficient or even popular answers to your biggest challenges. The biggest challenge you and I have is sin and death. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the best things will be added to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do come to you today and as we think about this text and the glory of who you are and what you've done, that you are a sovereign Lord who has, takes care of us and is an extraordinary God who uh, actually can overcome things that we could never overcome ourselves, we praise you. That Jesus, you're the sufficient one. You're the one who can accomplish life and redemption for us. You can provide our needs. And all of us here, Lord, are facing some big thing in life that just feels too big for us. And we feel our inadequacy, and we feel like we're not enough. And, and Lord, remind us today that you're enough. That you're enough to overcome it in your time and place, in your sovereign hand, just like, as you did in our text today. You're enough to lead us to real life. So we seek you. We hunger for you. We pray to you, asking you to lead us under your reign as a people and individually, and pray that in Christ's name. Amen.